0: Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. Hello, and welcome to the Massah Israel Conversation podcast. Today we have a very special episode, and I'll tell you why. First of all, our topic for today is a perennial discussion topic. A Typical hot potato political issue in Israel. It's been argued about for years, but we want to get through it in a civil, respectful way, as we usually debate these topics. And that is, should Haredim be drafted into the Israeli army? Currently, there is no actual law. There is, however, a status quo where if a student is studying in yeshiva, they are exempt from military service. Many religious Zionist Jews do also serve in the army. But Ultra-Orthodox, or as we say here in Israel, Haredi Jews don't. We want to debate if that's a good policy going forward. Now, what makes this a special episode is, due to a scheduling snafu, we do not have our usual third chair as a moderator. And so we have asked our engineer, Ben, to, I don't think for the totally first time, but certainly for more than he's ever done, to come in front of the microphone. Is that the... Yeah, you know, I'm on the mic. Oh, yeah. We're asking Ben to come up to the mic and moderate between me, Michael Unterberg, and Matthew Littman. How you doing, Matt?
1: Good morning. And Ben, it's very exciting that you're yeah. part of the conversation this morning. <laughs> it's, a, already, it's a pleasure
0: to be here. You're already in the credits, but I don't know what happens to credits on podcasts. I know I have to fill in, and then I, it doesn't appear anywhere, so I don't even know what that means. But now people will know your voice a little bit better. Sure. Now, Matt, you're going to take the position that Haredim should not be drafted. Should be exempt from draft. Okay, so I will take the position that they should be drafted. That's right. That's correct.
2: So, Matt, you want to start because it's the status quo. You want to give us your reasoning why you think, the sta- or not necessarily your reasoning, but a good reasoning
1: why we should continue with the status quo as is. Sure. So I'll start with a number of different arguments why I believe that the Haredi community should not have to go and serve in the army. The first reason is, it's as Mike said before, the status quo currently is that the Haredi community do not serve in the army. To change the status quo overnight, or even to change it somewhat gradually, takes a lot of time, and the culture of Haredim going into the army is just not part of the fabric of their society. So, to start having a top-down demand or command or law that would say that a group of people, which have built their entire culture, their entire uh, social fabric on the one of the principles, is not going to the army, and suddenly say, now you're going to the army, is not going to end well. I think there'll be pushback that would be completely unproductive. The soldiers who would then, or the Haredi youth who would then be drafted, I think would be unproductive because the lack of desire, the lack of motivation will be counterproductive to the the gibbush, the, um, the unity that you need to have to serve in an army. So that's number one, a cultural and social norm just doesn't allow for it. Number two, I'm not sure how helpful it would be to have the Haredim in the army. I'm going to tell you a quick anecdote to to support that. When I did my army service, I only had to do three months because I was older when I met Aliyah. And uh, we had one guy with us who was a Haredi Jew and he wouldn't accept the food that was provided at the army base because Mm -hmm. he believed that the rabbinate of the army wasn't kosher enough. So they had to bring him airplane style meals (laughs) from the local prison down the street that was Mahadran, And we said to him like, why are you doing this? He said, well, I only eat the mahadran, the extra level of, of kosher meals, and they told me they'd provide for me. We said, well, but what a hassle for them to have to bring it in and heat it up. He's like, yeah, I know, but they told me they wanted me to do the army, and they told me they'd provide me the meals, so here I am. But it was a real pain in the backside for for everybody. When we went out on training, he'd have to pack his own special food that they provided. Like It just seemed to not be worth the effort of having a guy who was going to be serving three days after our basic training, and then... like. For what? Like it just didn't seem to make sense to me. So that's number two, the practical considerations. And and thirdly, I think the Haredi communities, as I said before, do not want to serve in the army, both ideologically and practically. And the practical, the practical effort of including them, for example, they don't want. One of their concerns is interactions between men and women. But one of the principles the IDF is so proud of is equality in army service between men and women. Now there are certain units which are always being uh, argued against in the courts about whether women should serve. But generally speaking, the army uh, prides itself on allowing women to to train their male soldiers, to support the male soldiers, to serve alongside male soldiers in some cases. And the Haredi community don't want that. So what's going to happen? We're going to have segregated bases. We're going to have a mechid sit down the middle of bases. Like It just doesn't seem practical to support the Haredi community's integration into the army in that way. So on a practical level, I don't think it makes sense. On a societal level, I don't think it makes sense. And honestly, at the the way people are talking at the moment, and we've had this discussion on the podcast, is whether the army should become a professional army rather than a people's army. And if, it's, if we're at the point where we can say that maybe we don't need to have a universal draft for everybody because we've got enough soldiers, why are we taking the people that really, really, really don't want to be there? Why would we include them if we don't really need them Anyway, so one argument, which I, I don't know if Mike is going to introduce us I would say is, if you want to talk about the sharing the responsibility and sharing the, what's the word? my English The burden. Is, the burden. My English has just <laughs> dropped off off a cliff. But if you want to share the burden and share the responsibility, then what about introducing a national service program for Haredi? Now, the Haredi community is against that as well. But if you're going to introduce that, at least Haredi community could work within their own communities. So you've got less of the issues of men and women and less of the the non-societal norms or the non-halachic norms that they would want to be observed, have Haredi youth work in schools or hospitals or daycares or with the elderly, whatever it is, but where they're actually useful to society, where they're functioning in a way that they can function practically and that then everybody in the country feels that everybody is sharing in that burden. So I think a universal draft and drafting Haredim does just not make sense in so many ways. But the possibility of having like a national service program for Haredim does make sense. Okay, Matt, thank you for that. Mike,
2: it's time for your rebuttal.
0: Yeah, well, well, first of all, I think if you're talking about a a national service draft, then you've more or less conceded the argument. But let's take a step back. Why is it that that Haredim don't want to serve? You know, they give reasons in their community that they believe that that spiritually, the protection garnered from young men learning and studying Torah and Yeshiva is actually protecting the Jewish nation in a different way. and so they are serving the nation in their own way. I, I, I am sure people believe that. It, it, it's It's both hard to sustain from biblical or rabbinic sources as an argument, but I also don't think it's the it's the real underlying reason. I think the underlying reason is the Haredi community, is built on the idea that the modern world is a dangerous assimilatory place. And so in order to save the Judaism as we know it for the future, we have to set up cultural boundaries and barriers for our community so that we can maintain a resistance to assimilatory forces. The army looks terrifying. Historically, the army under the czars in Russia was specifically used to break people and assimil- assimilate them. We often brag, as Israelis, how the, our army is the great melting pot of all the different aspects of Israeli society. Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, rich, poor, north, south, all the different people come together and learn left, right, we learn to serve and we become one. Well, that sounds beautiful, unless you're Haredi, in which case, that sounds terrifying. It's it's exactly the point, and 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 the idea of handing over young men, or also, theoretically young women, also if the draft applies to women, is terrifying. And I would even say, in, if, if from the vantage point of many, it's unacceptable. The problem is obviously, and here you have both the army problem in terms of sharing the burden and what that does to Israeli society, but also the economic burden of most of these young men not working, not paying taxes, and yet their community takes a great deal of funding. Uh, We see even in the current government, their funding shot up at the expense of so many other problems in the budget. So you have this minority demographic that's contributing little to the economy, but draining it substantially. And I would argue that that is unsustainable. It's not a question of Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? You know, when you're driving your car into a brick wall, the debate over should I swerve, shouldn't I swerve, I have a bumper, is not the right question. Those are not the right questions to be asking. Our current course is unsustainable. The problem's deep. I think the 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 social problem that you're describing, Matt, is right on point. I don't think the logistical problems The logistical problems, I think, are all overcomable. We have already Haredi units in the army that have overcome most of those logistical concerns for the many thousands of Haredim who volunteer for the army because they want to serve. And so expanding that, I I, I don't think, is the concern. I do think that if you're talking about a national service option, currently the national service option is mostly used by young religious Zionist women and some young religious Zionist men who, for whatever reason, don't want to or can't serve in the military, but still want to serve the nation. National service, Sherut Lumi, as it's called in Hebrew, is a completely voluntary aspect of Israeli society for those who are excluded from the army, but they still want to contribute. What I think we need to do is a Sherut Leomi, a national service draft. So for those who the army wants to use, do that. But if in the Haredi community, or by the way, in, in the Arab community, you have service options within your community, that's great. Uh, 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 and that way you can feel that you're not exactly handing your young men and women over to assimilatory agencies if you have agencies within the community. So you do have the problem of, well, then how many hours a day can they spend learning and yeshiva and how many will they be doing? I don't know. And again, it comes down to logistics. But I do think that, by the way, it's both clearly what the vast majority of Israelis think should happen, a draft. It's also what the Israeli Supreme Court says has to happen, that whatever drafting happens in Israel has to be universal. You can't say, well, this segment of society is drafted, this segment of society isn't. And so again, we're heading towards a brick wall. And the, the question is, can we swerve to avoid it, or are we just talking about minimizing impact? But we have to work with people of good faith in the Haredi community, out of the Haredi community, and come up with a way that everyone feels that burdens are being shared, that Haredim feel that they're part of the Jewish nation, the state of Israel, that they're citizens, it's 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 important for them to integrate at least to that degree that they feel that they shoulder the burden of of Israeli life in some way. So I do think some form of draft, whether specifically to the military or not, to me is of less concern. But I not only do I think it's necessary, I think it's inevitable.
2: Yeah. Uh, I feel like both of you guys are kind of converging on this national sh- service kind of route, and maybe the, the it's just semantics that are different. Of you're saying it has to be a draft, and yeah. it has to be legally obligatory. Yeah, exactly. And it has to be. It feels like the the, the Haredim are on the same par as the rest of society, and you're saying this is a way that we can make sure that they're not just th- that they can maintain their spiritual life while still serving the the the, the country. But it's really you know the exact same c- convergence,
0: right? Well, I think making it a legal requirement is a little bit different. First of all, I would argue and again, you you have to work with good faith leaders in the Haredi community, but they've been so anti serving the Israeli state for so long that I think making it a legal requirement can let those leaders say, "Look, we had to compromise." You know, they we, we were looking at all sorts of terrible options. At least we've taken this legal responsibility for service whether in the army or not but but that way we've minimized the danger so yes we're going to have to serve we changed some of our argument but that's that was the best we could do to preserve but but trust us we've preserved our central principles in other words i think making not making it a legal requirement always leaves the wiggle room that leaders are just going to say no like you just you you can't tell us what to do. You just can't. We don't trust you. You're secular. Our whole community is based on the idea of you don't have anything useful to tell us. And so I think in Matt's very kind idea of offering them the possibility of of national service, I just think they'll reject it, and we're we're back in the same boat. I think you have to. I think there has to be a breaking point where the Haredim realize that as Israelis. They have to share the burden. And that has to become a culturally integrated message. And I don't think anything but legal mandate is going to change that. I think you'll still have pushback from fringe Haredi organizations. But I think you can—maybe I'm being optimistic when I say that I think you can get some major Haredi leaders— to support this, you can get the major Haredi parties to say, "This is what we fought for in Knesset. This is the best we could do, and we have the approbation of our great scholars that it, that this works. We order everyone to follow." I think you. I think it needs to. I I don't think having it as a cultural discussion will work. I think it has to be a legal requirement. The the issue with the
1: legal requirement. Is a it still comes back to that issue of top down. Now, there's lots of exactly there's lots of laws that I have to keep that I may not like, Mm -hmm. but I have to keep them. But it's in my cultural societal understanding that I'm part of society and part of being part of society is keeping to the laws of the land. Mm -hmm. The Haredi community don't share it in that same Mm -hmm. way, they don't have that same social contract. Mm -hmm. And again, when you suddenly change the status quo. That, that's a big wake-up. It's almost mm-hmm. like what's happening with the demonstrations that we've talked about a few times, mm-hmm. that changing the status quo is painful and hard, and people don't always want to accept it. There's mm-hmm. a reason why it became the status quo, because it was convenient or comfortable mm-hmm. or whatever. So I think that's part of the issue here. Like To say, oh, now we're going to tell you that as of 2025, given time to think about it, 2026, whatever, that there's going to have to be a mandatory national service, I still think will be almost... Too much of a uh, of a bridge to cross, and in terms of the support of the Haredi parties, that's a really interesting point you raise because right now they go to war. <laughs> well, they don't, but like, yeah, they, yeah. They, 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 figuratively speaking, they go to war against any sense of draft, whether that's national service, army, whatever it is. That they want to be treated differently and separately. Mm-hmm. That's their election promise. That's what they they fight for when mm-hmm. it comes to to the cursor. And I wonder what would cause them to have that shift. Now, I don't want to sound cynical. One way to cause that shift would be money, right? To so sort of say, okay, we're going to uh, condition funding for certain institutions mm-hmm. and certain programs on an acceptance that this volunteer draw, uh, this uh, mandatory national service, whatever it is, would, would come into force. But at the moment, at least politically, there's no need for them to do that because they're getting everything they want mm-hmm. financially anyway. <laughs> so... An incentive only works when it's incentivizing, but when you're getting it anyway, then I don't see what leverage there is right now.
2: So how would you maybe inspire the Haredi population to serve in some sort of national service if they're not being mandated?
1: Wow, okay. That is a tremendous question. That might be more of a bottom-up thing than a top-down thing.
0: I'll tell you how to do it. I'll, I'll I'll, I'll give you a freebie, Matt. All right. If I were on your side, I would say, here's what you do. You say, we need... 10,000 Haredim a year, we need you to do this for the community. Spend half your day doing national service so that we can tell the broader Israeli public that you don't have to make a law. In other words, they, if you Sacrificial do Sacrificial lamb. Yeah.
1: Manyan. Yeah, that could work. I mean, that definitely could work. It also needs to come, as you were talking about, these good faith leaders. It needs to come from some part of the leadership yeah. of the community to say— this actually isn't a terrible thing. Right. To go and work in a hospital and, and help people in a hospital or help people in a daycare, whatever These are it is. a very
0: important mitzvah, like as religious Jews. Right, and
1: it's that sort of education that comes mm-hmm. in that between man and, uh, and his friend, that if you put a religious Absolutely. imperative on it, then I think that helps to bring people around to thinking. Not
0: to mention, think about what will be role modeling to broader Israeli society instead of being seen as a drag on Israeli side, we could be seen as role models if we we do these things you know by working in hospitals and helping people and being i i i think that young religious zionist women by volunteering for national service are often seen around the country as role models of sacrifice and volunteerism and and bringing cheer to the ill and young and you know the developmentally disabled and you know wherever you are in the political or religious spectrum in israel you look at these young women and you go well, you know what that religious Zionist community is doing something right. And uh I, I think, you know, that needs to be part of the Haredi mindset. But but that's what I'm talking about. In other words, when you're saying that thing of, of refusal of integration, that is the element that has to go. And it's going to go. One way or the other, it's going to break. Because you cannot have—we you we, we can't be in a mutual self-destructive pact. By the way, when you say that Haredi leaders— work on this like anti-slippery slope method of anything that even smacks of the beginning of conciliatory measure to address this is in itself a danger. Even if the other side is looking at it as we're ameliorating the problem, we're trying to make an improvement in a bad status quo. And it's not entirely dissimilar than gun politics in the United States, which you have this lobby which is saying, you know, anything that doesn't allow firepower to take out a battalion of soldiers into the hands of mentally ill people, you know, teenagers, even that's a compromise, even though the vast majority of America thinks you need to, I would argue that that political approach is unsustainable. And eventually you're just going to create enough. You're go, if they maintain that, it's going to be a much harder hit into the wall. You're going to, one way or another, that wall's coming. You can swerve to avoid it. You can brace for impact and minimize the damage, or you could hit it full on. And right now, the Harenim are heading towards that wall full on. I don't know exactly when it is. And in terms of process, when you're saying, well, it would be too... So come up with a smart way to do it over the course of a decade. We're going to increase... I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do it. That's the kind of
1: gradual process of... If anything was going to work, it would have to come from that. Because if you're teaching kids, for example, who are in everything below sixth grade... About the value of, nation, of a national service, yeah. or the value of helping people in chesed, and all these yeah, things. Yeah, for
0: Am for Jewish people.
1: By the time they've got through high school or yeshiva, we're ready. Like they might be ready, right? So it's that sort of yeah. like I think, six, I, I think there, there would
2: have to be some sort of like getting through to the establishment, also not just not just bottom but up. That's it. Because they 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 have like they have chosen. This is the hill we're dying on. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're they're not relenting on anything. No. So there has to be some way to.
1: Politically at the moment, they don't need to, right? That's the thing. They don't need to give up anything. Again, when we have new elections or when we have a new government, that may change. But right now, that hill, they they, they can stand on that hill and they're not dying on it. (laughs) They're quite happy up there. So that becomes the the question. What I'm arguing
0: is that's a little bit like, you know, the guy falling from the Empire State Building. And as he, you know, he jumps off the top and as he passes the 50th floor, someone says, how's it going? He says, so far, so good. Like, I don't have to do anything. (laughs) Like, so so I, I, I think... You need to identify leaders of good faith on that side. But you also, I I would argue, it is the top-down needs to be accepted. In other words, to put it into religious, maybe more Haredi language, we have this idea of the yoke of heaven, like an ox wears a yoke, that you have the burden of following government that you serve under. And the Haredim simply say, we don't see that as our burden to be yoked under the even though there is a religious principle that any government you live in, you have to serve under the law. In Israel, we've managed to make parties that make us think that the laws don't apply to us. That has to go. And it has to be, it doesn't have to be shattered. You know, you're saying like, oh, it shouldn't be an instant. Okay. We have to find a way to at least erode that so that within a generation or two, there's a sense of Israeliness of being part of the whole, even though your lifestyle and your communities are whatever they are.
1: And then draft or anything like that becomes a lot less painful if there was going to be a mandatory draft. Right? That Correct. That's,
0: a... that's the environment. In other words, the draft is to be part of a broader, renewed uh, social contract role between Khuridim and the rest of Israeli society. Okay. Any final thoughts from either of you before we wrap this episode?
1: I, I don't think so.
0: Not for me. No, I don't think so. I think we had a good... Uh, and I, You know, off the debate stage for a moment, I don't know that I'd have... I, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a, a, a huge amount of difference between what Matt's saying and what I'm saying. Either one could work. And I would say that has more to do with Haredi leadership choosing which option they want. But the current approach of as long as we can make a deal with Bibi to maintain power in the government is democratically unstable. As long as we can undo the Supreme Court's power to make it the rule to treat all Israelis as equal. You're, you're just gaming the system too far and something's going to give.
2: I guess uh, we'll brace for impact and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, this was this was an excellent debate. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, Mike, for your contributions. And
0: thank you, Ben, for uh, sitting in our third chair.
1: Yeah, Sterling jump you did this
0: morning. Excellent. Thank you, Ben.
2: <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Masaf fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel and all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. And the connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.